I'm Marcy. I'm a very grateful compulsive overeater. Hi, Marcy. I'm also a nervous compulsive overeater. Speaking is not my most favorite thing to do. Hi, Mike. I'm less nervous now. Good to see you. Um, it helps me if I remember that it really is not about me, um, and, and if I just tell the truth, it'll be okay. Um, somebody said to me a few minutes ago, oh, you're going to share, she said, I, I don't know exactly how they said it, they said you're going to share your program, or that I'll be, I'll be here sharing my program, and um, I don't think you guys want me to share my program because my program got me to 250 pounds of morbid obesity. My program had me in fights with everybody in my life. My program had me in bad health, and um, I was a mess. So, so I guess I won't share my program today, but um, what I'll try to do is share how the program of Overeaters Anonymous has helped me to make changes in my life. Um, so I'll pass around pictures that show a little bit about what it was like, at least physically. I am what we call a hundred pounder. Like that's some um, always makes me laugh. Like oh, a hundred pounder, like it's a good thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I was so willful. I was so out of control that I managed to eat myself into more than a hundred pounds of. Um, excess weight and keep myself there for many years and um, you know I'm just grateful that today it's not like that I've been to, to qualify I've been abstaining from compulsively overeating for five years five years and four months I got abstinent in May so I think that's four months and um, it's only only by the grace of my higher power that I choose to call God that I'm abstinent today. Only. I don't take any credit for the abstinence that I have. It's truly a gift of a gift of this program and a gift of my higher power. And I connected with my higher power by following the plan that's outlined in the big book with Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how I found my higher power. That's how I connected with my higher power and and the 12 steps are how I remain connected with that higher power today people who know me John will smile I'm kind of a big book bumper somebody said a big book fundamentalist (laughs) I don't know yeah I am that's me And, 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 and you know because this book has saved my life and I really mean that literally it has saved my life and and um, yeah, there's a lot of friends here today. You know, that's, that is, I'm sorry if I'm rambling, but that's the amazing thing about this program is that almost any meeting that I've been to, I know somebody, and usually more than one somebody. I mean, even in other cities, um, I haven't been to OA in any other states or countries, but even in other cities, I always see people I know. and. It's like family. It always feels like family reunion. I see people that I have some connection with. And that was not my experience when I first came in here. When I first came into these rooms, I felt like I was the fattest person in the rooms. I felt like I was the only person of color a lot of times. You know, I I felt like 
um, I'm a lesbian. I felt like there weren't any other lesbians in here, no gay people. I mean, all that stuff that today I know is not true, but I was so into me and into my selfishness and, you know, that I just kind of sat around with my arms folded and was like, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about and you guys can't relate to me, poor me, you know. And, um, but you know what, I kept coming because I really didn't have anywhere else to go. I really had no other place to go. Um, what it was like, how I got into these rooms, um, I just ate what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted. If I thought about it, I ate it, you know. If it came into my head, I ate it. Money was not an option. You know, when I say this, believe me, I am not a rich person. But money was not an option when it came to food. I have, I, I, one of the wreckages of my past is that I had tremendous credit card debt because if I wanted to eat something, you know, there was plastic to pay for it or a bad check to pay for it or whatever. I mean, or I'd steal it. Um, but I ate whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, and um, never really considered the consequences. Um, I wanted to be thin, you know. I wanted to be a thin size, but I don't think that I ever really wanted to stop compulsively overeating for many, many years. And I think that's there's a difference, you know. I wanted to eat how I wanted to eat, and 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 be thin, you know. But I didn't want to not eat the things I wanted to eat, and that just doesn't work. But in my insanity, I thought somehow that I could make it work, you know. And um, if, if people had the audacity to say anything to me about my increasing weight, you know, because it is a progressive disease. I wasn't always 100 pounds overweight. But as I went up and up and up the scale, if, if people like doctors or my partner or my mother you know, have the audacity to say anything to me about my weight. You know, I have a very vicious tongue when I want to use it. And, you know, and I would just explode all over them. So people usually didn't say much to me about my weight. And, you know, and I was just happy. Or I thought I was happy. Um, And, um, you know, I would say it's not affecting my health. That, you know, that was kind of my standard line if somebody said, gee, you know, you're gaining a lot of weight. Or I remember a lady I work with who's very health conscious. And, you know, and she'd say, Marcy, maybe you should just eat one scoop of Cold Stone, you know, instead of the, I don't know, I go to Cold Stone three, four times in a day um, and, and get the largest one and stuff like that. You know, and, and she, she was just concerned. And I would just say, it's not affecting my health. I'm fine. It's not affecting my health. And that was really my story, and I really did believe that until one day it did affect my health. And that's what really brought me to my knees, and I'm grateful for that today because I think I would have just continued on as I was, gaining weight, gaining weight, and I don't think anything else would have brought me to my knees, made me surrender, except for the fact that it began to affect my physical well-being. Um, what happened, you know, I mean, and, and lots of stuff happened. Hygiene started to be difficult. My blood pressure was very high. My cholesterol was bad, stuff like that. But what really did it was that, that 
because of all the excess weight I was carrying, I managed to rupture the like three or four discs in my cervical spine. My right arm was paralyzed. I couldn't like move it. And I was just in tremendous, tremendous, tremendous pain. It's awful. If any of you have ever had, you know, spinal problems, it's really painful. That's where all your nerves are. And you're just really, really in pain. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it just kind of happened out of the blue. It just became really acute all at once. And um, they didn't know what it was at first. And I had to have an MRI, which I couldn't fit into, which was really fun. And then um, they had to knock me out so that I could be comfortable enough to go through the MRI. You know, I could fit in there, but I couldn't fit in there small. So it was just really awful. But when they finally figured out what it was and they told me what it was, I said, well, how could that happen to me? You know, I didn't have an accident. Um, you know, nothing happened. Because they asked me, you know, did you have a trauma where you rear-ended or something? I said, no. You know, how could this be? Why me? Poor me. And the doctor said, well, you know, Marcy, we, we see this problem. He said it real gently. We see this problem in, in people who are a little bit overweight. You know, and, it, and you know, <laughs> 100 pounds, a little bit overweight. You know, and if you, if, and, and you need to have surgery. And I had to have the, disc, the discs removed. I don't have all of my um, discs. They replaced them with cadaver bones, whatever. But... He said, you need to have this surgery, but if you don't want the problem to continue, and, and by continue they mean to keep going down my spine, which means eventually then you're like incontinent and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's not fun. He said, if you don't want the problem to continue and get worse, you really need to think about losing weight. So for the first time, I had this reason to lose weight. And I thought I could do it, you know. I really did. I thought, okay. And he said, you need to stop smoking, too. And I really enjoyed smoking. I really liked it. And um, I was never, like, a really heavy smoker. But I enjoyed cigarettes, and I'd have two, three cigarettes a day. He said, you need to stop smoking, and you need to lose weight. No problem. To, to, to illustrate the difference between the disease of compulsive overeating and my nicotine whatever it was, I was able to stop smoking. It was not a compulsion. It was not an obsession. It was not an addiction in the same way. I put the cigarettes down. I had done it before. I have two kids. I did it when I was pregnant, too. I put them down. I have not picked them up. I still, frankly, miss smoking. I enjoyed it. You know, I know it's this terrible thing now, but I miss it. You know, and sometimes I think, oh, it would be nice to have a cigarette. But... I was able to quit on my own power and not do it again because somebody told me it was bad for me in a way that made sense to me. And I thought I could do the same thing with the overeating. So, you know, I had whatever diet of the week, and I would always try. And I tried so hard to stop. I tried so hard to stop. I had had the surgery, and I remember having all this resolve that I was going to stop and eat better. And people knew me. They knew what I liked. People brought me treats in the hospital. I was eating stuff in the hospital. I mean, that's how good the willpower was. I had just had this surgery, and somebody brought me a couple pints of, of um, 
Dolce Delete Hagen Dazs, and I remember eating the pints that night, and people would bring me seeds, and I'd eat the pound box. You know, you're supposed to eat one a day or something. You know, I'd eat the pound. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do it. You know, I just couldn't do it. And every morning, I woke up with this resolve that today it's going to be different. Today I'm not going to do it. I have to get this weight off. I have to stop doing this because they told me what's going to happen to me if I don't stop. And I just couldn't stop. And it seemed to me that the harder I tried to stop, the worse it was. You know, the more I made up my mind, the more out of control I was with the food, the more out of control I was, you know. And sweets were a real big thing for me. You might have guessed that from the pint of ice cream story. But, I mean, it was just like every day birthday cake was my thing, and I would stop at the grocery store or the bakery on the way home and get a cake and eat a cake in addition to all the other stuff I was eating. And I'd wake up in the morning and I'd say, today, and I'd have all these crazy fad diets, like I'm just going to drink lemonade with cayenne pepper and maple syrup all day and have that for, you know, it would be crazy. It was never like sanity, you know, like, you know, three meals a day and moderate meals. It was insane stuff, but I really think I was going to do it, and I would wake up and say, okay, that's what the plan is today. And, you know, the car would, like, drive to Tommy Burgers at 8.30 in the morning, and I'd be eating two chili cheeseburgers, extra chili, extra mayo, before breakfast. That wasn't breakfast, you know, and then I'd stop and have a bagel for breakfast. And, and, you know, I mean, it was just, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And it scared me that I couldn't stop. Once I saw that I couldn't stop, it really, really scared me. And um, I have the gift in my life of, of people in my life who are sober and clean in Alcoholics Anonymous. And... Um, we were in Las Vegas celebrating sobriety birthdays, and there were people there that had like 20 years sobriety, 15 years sobriety, stuff like that, long-term um, sobriety from drugs and alcohol. And it was just like something told me that if whatever worked for them, whatever kept them clean and sober for all those years, Perhaps that something could help me. And I didn't really know anybody that had been successful in Overeaters Anonymous or anything, but just something made me feel like if it could work for them, you know, I'm talking about people that were addicted to crack cocaine, that lived on the streets, that sold themselves, you know, to get money to... If if it could work for them and they were like normal functioning people today, gee... Maybe it could help me with the birthday cake thing, you know. So um, I made up my mind there in Las Vegas as I tried to eat all of Las Vegas. <laughs> I, you know, I made up my mind to go to an OA meeting, and I went to my first OA meeting May 1st of 2002, and I was abstinent that day, and I have been abstinent by the grace of God ever since that day. And um, I think it's real important for me to talk about what abstinence means to me. I, I know we talk a lot about defining our own abstinences, and we say stuff like that. I, for me personally, I think that's real dangerous for me. Um, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that the crux of my problem is my thinking, you know, my thinking. So it's not so safe for me to, like, use my thinking to define something that's going to be a solution for my problem. 
So I think that the definitions that our literature give me for abstinence are, are, you know, are um, the definitions that are wiser for me to use. And, and in our OA literature, it says abstinence is the practice of refraining from compulsively overeating. Um, it says we do this by eating planned, planned, <laughs> moderate meals, and by refraining from our individual, you know, binge foods or alcoholic foods or whatever. And um, that's really what abstinence means for me. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I'm abstinent because I, um, I don't know, you know, and I don't want to offend anybody, but, like, I'm abstinent because I don't eat in my car or I'm abstinent because I keep coming back no matter what. But for me, that's not what our literature says, and I, I don't think that would give me the desired relief, you know, because I wanted some relief. And in the big book, in the doctor's opinion, he says that the only relief that he can suggest is entire abstinence. And, and people say, well, I can't abstain from food, but food's not really my problem. I need food to eat. Overeating is my problem. And I can, by the grace of God, abstain from overeating, you know, or if my problem was undereating or restricting or bulimia, I can, re- I can refrain from those things with the help of a higher power, with the help of the 12 steps. So when we talk about entire abstinence and I say I've been abstaining for five years and four months, I have been abstaining entirely from compulsively overeating. And personally, I do that by having a food plan that is three meals a day, three moderate planned meals a day. Um, To me, a food plan means that that it needs to address quantity and nutrition. You know, both of those things need to be part of a food plan. Again, I don't think it's safe for my sick, broken brain to to devise my own food plan. I think we need outside help with that. And the outside help could be as simple as, you know, the OA pamphlets that talk about food plans, or it could be going to a doctor or a nutritionist. But I don't think I don't think it's safe for me to like try to come up with a food plan for me. So I personally went to a nutritionist. I had almost 100 pounds to lose at that time, and I explained to her that I was in OA, and I asked her to help me with a three meal a day food plan, and 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 I follow that plan today. It's a plan. It's not a diet. It's a plan, and I follow it today. Um, and um, and I also refrain from my personal alcoholic foods. I, I don't know, you know, people call them bitch foods, alcoholic foods, which for me were like recreational sugar, you know, cookies, cakes, ice cream. If I could do that stuff in moderation, I would. I don't have any opinion about other people in, in the fellowship doing those things. I sponsor somebody who has dessert because she can have dessert in moderation. She can have a slice of cake and stop. That's not me. And I had to get honest about that. Um, my sponsor always says, like, honesty, the honesty of the program starts at the plate. You know, it starts with our food. And I think, for me, I had to get really honest about, you know, what what is alcoholic for me. And it was not hard for me to figure out. It was, you know, all that stuff that that I just never ate one cookie or I never could eat one piece of candy or one candy bar or whatever. I ate it till it was gone. 
You know, Steve's candy did not have a chance in my house. I ate all the ones I liked, and then I'd go eat the ones I didn't like, you know. So, so you know, for me, abstinence is, it really is the most important thing in my life without, upset, without exception. And um, I'm willing to do anything that I need to do today to remain abstinent. And when I got here, it was real confusing to me, and I, you know, I didn't really know, um, you know, what you're supposed to do. And I heard a lot of stuff in meetings, and I heard all these different abstinences and stuff. And that's why I'm really grateful for the literature, because the literature helps to make things much, much clearer for me. But um, when I got here, I would have just done anything anybody told me, you know. And um, I went to a meeting every day. My first year, I think I went to a meeting almost every day. Um, you know, I made phone calls because you guys didn't make phone calls. And, and I, you know, I, I just I did a lot of service. I did whatever I was told to do. And over and over and over, the people who really had what I wanted, the people who had, you know, normal body size and kind of had that look of serenity or peace in their eyes, you know, who seemed to, to, to have something that I really wanted, those people said that what they did was to work the 12 steps, um, you know, outlined in, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everybody talked about those 12 steps. So I really got convinced that the 12 steps were, were going to be my salvation. And um, if you're new or you're struggling or anything like that, you know, the, the 12 steps are really where it at. It really where they're really where the recovery is at. You know, I can um, go to meetings all I want, and I can go to you know be of service all I want. But if I want recovery, the plan for recovery is is in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where the recovery is. The meetings are for fellowship, and I love meetings, and I love coming and seeing all of you, but the recovery is in the 12 steps. And um, I think they're designed to be taken in order. And step one says I have to make an admission that I'm powerless over food, and that means that I have to make an admission that my way is not going to work. And that goes back to getting that food plan thing, and that goes back to getting honest about, you know, that, that, you know, that means that I've surrendered to this thing that, you know, I can't do it. I can't. Step one is all about I can't. And a lot of times people say, oh, I'm struggling. And I always remember what my sponsor said. If you're struggling, then you haven't surrendered. You have not surrendered. If you're still struggling with food, then you haven't taken step one. Um, because if I'm really surrendered to something, I'm no longer fighting it, you know. And... Um, I had to do what people told me to do about food. I call my food in. That, that was like, when I heard people say that in meetings, I don't know about you guys, but I thought that was just the craziest thing. Like, you tell people what you eat? I never told the truth about what I eat, you know? I'd, I'd binge all day long and come home and tell my partner, well, I didn't eat all day. What's for dinner? You know, really. Like, I never told the truth about what I ate. And... Um, you know, today I still tell the truth every day 
about what my plan for the day is, what my food plan for the day is. If I make any changes, I tell the truth about that. You know, that's part of that surrender to me. Like, my ideas just didn't work. And um, because you guys told me that, that if I took the 12 steps to the best of my ability, I could, I could get recovery too, I came to believe, you know. Um, I, didn't, I didn't come in here with a relationship with a higher power. You know, I came in here wanting that. I think I've always been a person who kind of wanted to be a spiritual person, and I tried different um, churches or spiritual paths, but I never really got a relationship with a higher power until I came in here. And I think when I say I'm a grateful compulsive overeater, that's the thing I'm most grateful for. I mean, I'm grateful to be a normal body size. I'm grateful to have better relationships today. I'm grateful for all that stuff. But I think the thing that I'm most grateful for is that today I really do have a trust and a faith and a reliance upon a power greater than me, you know. And and that's, like, so wonderful. And it's seen me through so many things um, just in this five years, you know. um, That's just the greatest gift, you know. That's just the greatest gift. The other stuff is is really cool um, and, and nice. But that relationship with with the higher power that I choose to call God is the most wonderful gift of this program, of the program of Overeaters Anonymous. Um, Yeah. And I guess, like, I don't know. I still have a lot of time left, huh? This is a long share. So (laughs) I guess I'll talk about the steps because, you know, that's where it's at. So, um... Step three talks about making a decision to turn my will and my life over to God's care. And um, the way I understand that is my will is my thinking and my life is my actions. So I'm asking God to, to direct and, and care for me in all those areas, you know, my thoughts and my actions. And it doesn't mean just when it comes to food. It means all my thoughts and all my actions. And... Um, I really believe that God speaks to me through other people. I think like Marcy alone with God could be dangerous because, you know, it talks about in the 12 and 12 how often have we heard people like justify or rationalize things that they say God, you know, told them to do. We could look around the world and see that right today. You know, God told me to do whatever, you know. So so for me, um, a lot of allowing God to guide and direct my life is by turning to people who are on the same spiritual path as me and running my ideas, my problems, my concerns by them. You know, um, a lot of step three is about that for me. You know, checking in with other people, saying, you know, I have this situation at work. How do you think um, I should handle it? Or have you ever had a similar experience? What do you think the 12 steps would have me do? That kind of thing. You know, not just flying Marcy and God, because, you know, um, I'm just a baby in this, and we don't ask babies to do things without some guidance and some direction and some supervision and all that stuff, and I, I still need that. Um, I've 
The way I understand step three is that it's an ideal, this ideal of being free from the bondage of self. That's an ideal. It doesn't happen in step three. It probably will never happen in my lifetime. I will never be completely free from the bondage of myself. But the other steps, 4 through 12, are designed to make the ideal of step 3 more and more real. You know, so I make this decision in step 3, but it's just a decision. If you don't follow it up with some action, nothing's going to happen, right? So I'm making the decision that I want to be free from my selfishness and from my self-centeredness. I want to be free from this bondage of self. And then as I take the other steps, that ideal comes more and more and more real in my life as I take 4 through 12. And in, in um, the AA 12 and 12, it says nothing short of continuous action. Continuous action on these steps as a way of life will bring about the re- desired result. And, you know, the desired result for me is that I get to stay abstinent and I get to have better relationships and I get to have a, a, a connection with the higher power. That's the desired result. So, so working the other steps makes step three, that ideal of step three, more and more and more real in my life. It manifests more as I take the other steps. So, um, you know, I, I took an inventory exactly the way it was suggested in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, I wrote down stuff that I didn't think I'd ever tell another human being, you know. I mean, I, I, when I took that first inventory, I don't know, I was, what, like 46 years old? So I walked around this planet a long time being selfish and self-centered and fearful and acting out sexually and stealing stuff and doing all kind of stuff. And I wrote down everything that I could think of the way it suggested, you know, talking about my resentments, talking about my fears, talking about the harms I've done to people. And um, stuff I thought I would never, ever tell another human being. And, um, you know, I only did it because you guys said that if I did it, I'd get this relief. You know, it wasn't because... I'm such a spiritual good person, it was because I really wanted what the big book promised, which was recovery. And so I, I made that inventory the first time, and I've since made, you know, I continue to take inventory. But that first inventory, I remember sitting down with my sponsor, and you couldn't find a more loving, kind person than my sponsor, but I was really scared to tell all this kind of stuff. And, um, for, you know, if, if you haven't, done an inventory, if you haven't taken step five, I can tell you from personal experience that after I took step five and after I talked about all that stuff that I had been harboring for so long, that the obsession to overeat was gone. It's gone. And it has not come back one day at a time. It has not come back. And that's like the real miracle for me because up until that point, I was real scared. of. I took, I took step five. I was probably like five months abstinent. And I'd been abstaining, but I was thinking about food all the time. And I was scared of food, and I couldn't have it in the house. And I remember it was like Halloween time, and I was like, oh, no, we can't have candy. And, you know, and I, was, I wouldn't go to parties and stuff because, oh, no, they might have a birthday cake, you know. And I, I was scared. Um, and it was kind of that white-knuckle thing, I think, you know. But after I took step five, I remember, like, one day 
very shortly after that, like that obsession was just gone. It was gone. And today I can have candy in my house because I have kids. And I have a partner that doesn't have my problem. And, and we have company. And I can have candy and cookies. And there's a, there's a big old gallon of ice cream in my, in my refrigerator right now. I saw it the other day that the young lady that lives with us bought. And it doesn't call to me. It doesn't call to me. And, you know, that's a miracle because I wouldn't have cared that it wasn't my gallon. Do you understand what I'm saying? It wouldn't have mattered that that wasn't mine. I would have ate it. You know, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered. I had to. It was necessary. I had to. You know, and today it is no longer, no longer necessary for me to eat like that. It's not necessary. It was necessary. I mean, I remember talking about what it was like. I remember it was my, like, you know how you have a party for a friend, and it was my role in the party to pick up the birthday cake and bring it to the party. This was like a sheet cake. And I remember having the cake in the car on the seat beside me and just doing that with the icing, you know, just a little icing on the finger. And by the time I got to the party, half the sheet cake was gone. And I, you know, it's like I had to do that. I don't know if you know, it was necessary. I had to. It was a compulsion. And there was nothing that could have stopped me from doing that. Um, And I remember dropped, like, I had to make a big drama, and I dropped the cake and pretended that that's what happened to it, you know. And I can remember that as, you know, it's, it's shameful to me that I did that, but I was in the grips of a disease, and I don't think I could have done anything else. And, you know, and I, I pray to God that I find that person so that I could make amends to that person because I've lost touch with that particular friend. And um, I've made a lot of amends. I've made a lot of amends um, by the grace of this program. And um, I don't like making amends. You know, they're not fun. But you get free, you know. Um, you get you get free, and they come about in, in you know, in different ways. And, and um, like I said, I was, I think I said I was a real thief, and I, I stole a lot, and I did a lot of harm through that. And I've had to make a lot of really humbling amends, you know, going back to stores and saying I stole and making restitution. And, you know, um, I had to go to Hanson's Cakes because I used to go to, Hansons and say I was getting married. I thought this was very clever. Today I, I feel ashamed about it really, but I thought it was clever to go and say I'm getting married and they give you this nice little box of sample cakes. And I used to do that rather frequently. You know, and I had to go to Hansons Cake in Beverly Hills on wherever it is um, and go in there and make amends for that. And Talk about humbling. You know, and the lady was so sweet. And always, I, this story was so funny to me because the lady was like, oh, honey, that's okay. Everybody does that. And she was just like, well, yeah, you know, she was so sweet. And, and would, you, would you like another piece now? You know, she was like, and I had already said, I'm a member of the fellowship. Overeaters Anonymous, it didn't matter, you know. But so, you know, so, so making amends is just one more way I get to be freer of this bondage of self. You know, I get to be freer. And, um, you know, all of them have not gone that nicely. Some people have not wanted to forgive me. And, you know, I have to accept that. Um, I was not a very nice person 
in the disease. You know, um, although I think probably people would say, oh, she's a nice person, you know. But um, if you got to know me, I could be really mean and really selfish and cruel. Um, you know, what it's like today, um, I, I continue to work the steps on a daily basis because I really believe that I do just have a daily reprieve um, from the obsession. And when I talk about it, that obsession is gone, it's really gone. And food is not a problem today, and that is wonderful. And, um, you know, um, I came in here size 22, 24 pants. And I love that today I put on these jeans that I haven't worn all summer, but since it's a little colder, I put the jeans on. They're size 8, and they fit. And, you know, they're not tight. They're not, you know, they fit. That's, that's what normal people do all the time, but that was never my experience. Um, and I believe I just get that daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And I believe that the way I maintain my spiritual condition is by working the 12 steps. You know, so um, I, I do continue to take personal inventory. I, I take a 10th step in, in, in the evening when I, when I retire, but I also try to take it throughout the day, and I also set aside time every year to take another, you know, another more major fourth step. Um, I use prayer and meditation a lot um, in the morning, and I, and I really try to follow the suggestions of the book, which is kind of cool because they don't say this is the only way to do it. They just say here's some suggestions, and then you can take it where you want to take it, but start here. So I use the 11-step suggestions from the book. And then I get to add my own prayers and my own meditations and do my own stuff, you know, which, you know, that's so different for me from religion where, like, religion says do it this way and be on this path. So I get to develop my own spirituality. But I start with the suggestions in the book, you know, and I pray in the morning and I pray before I go to bed at night and I meditate and I pray throughout the day. Um, I always pray before meals today, which I never did, and that I think really helps a lot to just give me that moment of pausing, you know, before diving into my food. Um, sometimes I forget until I've got a couple bites in my mouth, but, you know. And um, step 12, I really, I think like some of the biggest changes in my life have come through step 12 through trying to carry the message, you know, working with others. Like, I feel like I grow so much from sponsoring, and it's such a gift. Like, the people I sponsor are such incredible gifts to me, and I really love working with others, and I really love carrying this message. And, and I, I try really hard in sponsoring to only carry the message of the 12 steps and to not give, like, a lot of advice or opinions or stuff that comes out of here. Because we already know this is the problem, you know. <laughs> and, you know, so I, it's a big problem. So I really try to, you know, stick to what the book says. And, um, and then, you know, I, I feel safe in that, and, you know, and... Um, I have a couple sponsors, so sometimes when I say my sponsor, I might be talking about one or the other, but I remember that um, my, my, the person who has really taken me through the steps and worked with me through the steps said 
you know, if, a, if when you're working with others, because I was all scared and nervous about it. Like, am I ready to sponsor? What if, you know, what if I mess them up? And um, he said that, you know, if you remember this, you're going to be okay. You carry this message, the message that's in this book. If a person recovers, it has nothing to do with you. If the person does not recover and goes out and binges their brains out, it has nothing to do with you. And, and that was such a relief to me. Like, we're going to die from compulsive overeating. All I can do is try to carry this message, and the person's recovery is up to them and their higher power. So I can't kill anybody, and I can't save anybody. You know, pretty cool if I stick to what, what's in this book. Now, if I start telling people a bunch of stuff that's in my head, I think I can be harmful to people. I think we can harm people that we sponsor if we start, you know, giving advice that we're not qualified to give. So, wow. Um, you know, I, I just um, I want to close by just saying I'm, I'm really grateful to be here. Um, I, I, John is someone who... Um, is real important to me in my life, and I'm real grateful that John asked me to speak, and Harriet, actually Harriet asked me to speak, and um, I'm grateful to both of them, um, and I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be abstinent, and thanks for letting me share.